Hey folks, and welcome to this week's podcast. Joel Selvin is our guest today. You may remember he's been a guest twice before on the program, once to discuss his Burt Burns bio, Here Comes the Night, and once to discuss Hollywood Eden, his book about how a bunch of high school kids all graduated around the same time from L.A. area high schools and went on to create the West Coast pop sound that would, just a few years after their graduation, completely dominate the charts. Both interesting chats and interesting books. Uh, they're archived over at WFMU.org slash Michael if you're interested. Today, we're going to talk about his brand new book, Drums and Demons, The Tragic Journey of Jim Gordon. Loved this book. Super necessary book. Something I was dying to read. And, a, you know, his story, I just musically and his just his timeline has sort of come down to this one event and his music has kind of been whittled down to the songs he's the most known for. So I spent a long time this week going down that rabbit hole. There's a couple of great online resources for Jim Gordon discographies and they're both linked on the playlist for today's program. And if you're at all curious, I really highly recommend going down there because it's just an amazing variety and amount, sheer numbers of records. But the variety is really kind of, it's hard to fathom someone doing that body of work uh, in, in these days. It just doesn't work that way anymore. So super interesting body of work and super interesting story. So I think you'll find this good. Uh, one other thing, I want to let you know that our fundraiser starts March 4th. You can pledge over at WFMU.org slash Michael. Just go to the banner at the top of the page. Pledge your support. You can say in the comment section that you are a podcast fan. That's always good to know and uh, you'll get some nice stuff. There's a a set of four full-color Michael Shelley Show coasters that are our way of thanking you this year. So head to WFMU.org slash Michael if you're interested in uh, supporting the podcast. Kay Adams, country singer, is our guest uh, March 2nd. Robbie Folks, he's back March 30th. Always happy to have him on the show anytime he wants to. He's just one of the all-time greats. Uh, today, though, it's me and Joel Selvin. Information on him at JoelSelvin.com. Uh, I hope you enjoy this chat with me and Joel. Uh, there's Jim Gordon on the drums, and I believe Joel Selvin on the telephone. Joel, are you there? I'm there. I'm here. Hi, <laughs> well, Michael. Welcome back to the program. The new book is called Drums and Demons, The Tragic Journey of Jim Gordon. And I really loved the book. I really ate it up. This is a book that needed to be written for many reasons. It's definitely an interesting and untold story, but it also, you know, his musical contributions and his importance in the L.A. studio music scene have sort of been overshadowed by his mental illness. And I think some perspective was needed and you provided that. Is that sort of part of what you set out to do? Absolutely. Thank you, Michael. Yes, I wanted to bring some compassion to the story of Jim Gordon, which had been so shy of compassion. It's just this so uh, this horrifying event that just obliterated who he was, what he had done, and because of the nature of his illness, he struggled for years to hide it from people, and and the true nature of his battle against all that was never told. Hmm. Yeah. And what the book does, it kind of walks us through his life, through his childhood, through his semi-professional days, how he broke into the scene, his ups and downs with the mental health, until it all crescendos. And you took, at least I think, great pains to find that compassion that you talked about, to not romanticize or over-dramatize it. Uh, maybe I'm over-reading between the lines here, but it seems to me that you really took some time to figure out how to talk about how the story ends and how to do it respectfully and not sensationalize it and how to balance it with the story of this wildly talented guy and put it all in historical perspective. And I assume that was very deliberate, and I assume it was not easy to achieve that balance. The most surprising thing that I learned in, in, in writing this book is just how common schizophrenia is. Michael, it shows up in one in 100 in the general population. Yeah, I read that in the book and my mind was blown, yeah. By comparison, multiple sclerosis is one in 10,000, right? So all those people out on the streets that are living in tents and stuff, they're hearing voices. Yeah. So that's that's the starter. Then then the next thing is 
I came to understand how deeply Jim struggled with this and how ashamed he was of it and the depths he went to hide it from people. And my heart just like was struck by this whole thing. On the other hand, it it is incumbent on me as as an author and and, and to to be frank, to be brutally frank. And and so the the depictions of his illness are, are, are quite stark. I mean, the the whole thing with the gold records and, and all that at the end, right? But at the same time, I want readers to, to feel Jim because his life was so brilliant and, and, and it was filled with so much wonderful sort of California 60s promise and it went so bad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's like the ultimate baby boomer. So I want to do I want to do the opposite of what you did. I want to start the book at the culmination, which is the end of around 1983. This is a seriously mentally ill guy who heard voices. He did a tremendous amount of self-medicating with drugs and alcohol. He ended up killing his mother very brutally, going to jail where he died March 2023, age 77, after 39 years in prison. And his legacy became this other thing, like you said. And one thing, like you said, the, the, you know, he had the schizophrenia. When did it show up in his life? How early did the mental illness show up? Well, there's no real way of telling. Jim is not forthcoming about that over the course of various interviews. At some point, he will say that it didn't show up until uh, he was older, and at some point, he'll say that, oh, he's heard him all his life. Hmm. And the typical schizophrenic starts showing symptoms in late teens. And uh, Jim may have had vague symptoms even earlier. But the real struggle for him started when he was about 30. So, and, and that's when he got the command hallucinations. And that's the most severe symptom in all of mental illness. That, that is the voices tell you to do something. And if you don't do it, they punish you with headaches and fits. Jim would find himself squirming in pain on the floor, unable to get rid of what the uh, other uh, uh, patients would call an electric hat band. That's the, what they call the symptom. Jim called it white hot cruelty pain. Hmm. Uh, I, that, you know, I, don't, I did not know too much about him. I knew the, you know, I knew what he'd done and I knew some of the records he played on. Uh, but for instance, he was high school president and he was a guy who was you know, fairly popular and studied the drums very seriously, took it very seriously from a very, very young age. So 1962, he starts playing with this band, Frankie Knight and the Jesters. And in this part of the book, like I said, he seems very normal. He's working jobs. He's hustling gigs. He's Mr. Teenager, you know, trying to date girls, whatever. Mike Post is a guy who runs throughout the story. He ends up working a lot in, in music uh, does a lot of television music stuff like that, and he, he's I think he goes to high school uh, with Jim, and they are in this band together, and they're playing out in clubs. And how did they? I know they started doing these like non-union demo stuff like that. How did they burst into that low level of the scene? Well, Mike Post is remains just a, a consummate hustler. He he had ambition to spare, and he was the one that met Lenny Warnaker, and Lenny was the son of the owner of Liberty Records. And so they were all high school kids, right? And Lenny was producing demos for his father's music publishing company, Metric Music. And Lenny would go on to become president of Warner Brothers Records and make extraordinary albums with so many famous people. But at that point, he was just a high school kid whose dad owned a record company in, in, in Hollywood when it was still a small town. Post found him. They started doing these cheap sessions. He brought Jim along. And those guys would hook back up a few years later at Warner Brothers Records. I mean, when Lenny started producing uh, Randy Newman and and Harper's Bazaar and and all those acts that he was doing at Warner Brothers, he never went into the studio without Jim. Yeah, and they knew each other since they were they were kids. Well, am I right that I did I read? This, am I remembering this right? In the book somewhere, Jim Gordon pledges never to do drugs. Yes, that was. Mike Post and Jim's high school girlfriend, who would become his first wife, Jill Barabi, they all pledged to not do drugs and, and, and to be serious, upright, 
It was a very conservative time, talking like, you know, 1960, 61. Jim was involved in a big, like, 45-piece marching band that traveled to Europe for the State Department and and played in in, in Americana-type shows around, called the Robin Hood Band. It was a part of the International Foresters. And Jill was a member of that. So there was all this sort of, like, you know, fresh-faced Disney kid San Fernando Valley stuff where uh, uh, he was coming out of his life uh, at Grant High School. Mm. So his big break is this guy, Joey Page, who's the musical director for the Everly Brothers, sees him at this club, Pandora's Box. That's a famous, I, I kind of looked into, because that, that name rang such a bell for me, and I sort of went down the rabbit hole on what that place was. Super interesting. So he sees Jim with the jesters and says, boy, this guy's great, hires him for a tour, which leaves the day after high school graduation, 1963. And right off the bat, it seems to me, people could see that he was a special drummer, especially other musicians. Well, that's drummers for you. I mean, who pays that much attention to drummers? Musicians, <laughs> that's who pays attention to. And and Jim had an intuition that was just much larger than other drummers. He brought a kind of roll, a bounce, a lilt to the drums that was purely instinctive and, and, and new stuff that you couldn't teach. But he'd been taught. He'd been taught by... Uh, Cubby O'Brien's dad, who was a, a, a big-time uh, uh, jazz drummer, he, he took lessons at UCLA with a, a very uh, serious uh, uh, percussion teacher who sent him home doing Bach homework on the mallets, right? You know, playing Bach on the marimba. So he was trained to a, uh, a fairly well, but the stuff that made Jim special, the stuff that made people go, whoa, what was that? That was stuff he couldn't have been taught and couldn't have learned. That was some kind of like gift of his own imagination, and it's on every record he plays. Hmm. Interesting. He briefly attends college. He drops out. I think it's just music is too much of a lure for him. And the book chronicles, you know, it's sort of telling the story of how 60s music evolved while it's telling the story of Jim, just because you sort of have to tell that those two stories together. Uh, so we see how... Los Angeles becomes, it sort of takes over from New York as where the studio scene and is, and West Coast pop sound develops. It also talks a little bit about the history of drumming, which I really enjoyed. You talk a lot about Gene Krupa's influence on the first batch of studio drummers, guys like Gary Chester. Can you hear Gene Krupa's drumming in 60s pop? Oh, you hear it all the time uh, if you start to focus on 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 the 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 bottom end on the on the rhythm section. Uh, the New York recordings featuring people like Panama Francis, who was an old time uh, R and B drummer, played on tons of hit records. It has that swing on the on the toms that just is, uh, marks the infection of of Gene Krupa, who was such a powerful. Um, character and and, and 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 he his he's so defined how that drum set would be played he designed the drum set gene krupa did yeah uh it's such an interesting time and the amount of great records being cut in la just as jim is kind of getting ripe is mind-blowing and i want to say that I looked at this um, discography that you talk about in the book a little bit, and the, I'll give the address. It's jimgordondiscography.blogspot.com, and it's hard to know exactly who plays on what. Uh, sometimes you know somebody played on an album, you don't know exactly what track. So forgive me if in the songs I've played today, uh, you know, I've made some mistakes, but we can pretty much guess for some, and then some we know exactly. Did uh, you have access to session logs or contracts? That. Uh, discography that you mentioned, the Jim Gordon on Blogspot, is run by a, a really talented drummer named Adam Minkoff. And I got in touch with Adam as soon as I found his um, discography, which was very early in the process, and he was super enthusiastic about a book project. And through Adam, I got my hands on about a thousand union contracts. And the union contracts for recording sessions, Michael, you know what they're like. I mean, they have the date, the place, who paid for it, who was on it, uh, what songs were recorded, how long the session was. I mean, it's just a, a, a complete microcosm of every session. And this thousand union contracts, I, I figure, represents a, somewhere between a third and half 
of Jim's union career, right? And it's all records. There's, you know, none of his, his, his commercials or his jingles or stuff like that. And there's amazing things in there, like the Tom Petty solo sessions. Who knew that there were Tom Petty solo sessions, right? Oh, yeah, with, with Al Cooper and Emery Gordy and Jim Gordon. Or Steely Dan contracts. You know, who really did play on the Steely Dan uh, sessions and what songs did they play on? Well, they're on the contracts. And can anybody just march down to the union and say, you know, can I... No, (laughs) no. At one point, the union was very open to uh, having researchers look at this stuff. But, you know, it just was too much of a mess and too difficult. And so that became pretty private. Somewhere along the lines... Somebody got in there who was interested in doing the Jim Gordon uh, research, and and this pile of contracts was uh, assembled. And I, I wasn't Adam; they came into Adam's hand somewhere, and then he copied them to me. Mm. That's fa- I mean, it's fascinating, and it's too bad that that stuff isn't all just in the the public, so we can all know exactly uh, what went down and and when it went went down. So he had this unique style. He really wanted to get into that studio thing, and he moved from doing these demos. And I don't know exactly the link, but one of the early links is in '66. Hal Blaine refers him to Brian Wilson. He ends up playing on some pet sounds sessions, including uh, you point out orange juice bottles on God Only Knows. Where did that story come from? Oh, that's kind of a well-known piece of the of the Jim Gordon uh, uh, lore. Uh, I first ran across it in um, a Jim Keltner interview, and, mm. and where, where Jim Keltner, who's of course the most famous session drummer since Jim, you know, is praising Jim's unique uh, abilities and his imagination, and talks about how he took a razor blade and cut these little plastic orange juice bottles to different pitches, and then followed Hal Blaine's drum part with the orange juice. Next time you listen to God Only Knows, you can hear the orange juice bottles. They're very prominent in the mix, but they, they, they blend into the whole orchestration so well that unless you're listening for them, you know, they, they just, they just move the, the music along. It's so Brian, so Brian. And so, Jim, so I don't want to turn this into a resuscitation of uh, Jim Gordon's discography, but I do think it's important that we do pause a couple times and just to talk about the sheer numbers. And if folks visit that uh, spot, which there is a, a link on today's playlist, you can just click on to go there, you'll see the sheer number is a little bit mind-blowing. So this this peak period, 66, 67, 68, he seems as busy as anybody. There's some tracks like Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Marrakesh Express, and Wichita Lineman, and Harper's Bizarre Feeling Groovy, and uh, Nielsen's Everybody's Talking, where there's definitely this kind of gym, acoustic kind of a groove thing that is... To me, very much what he was like, he he just owned that thing. But he, he plays on Dino Desi and Billy Records, Sonny and Cher, Moore Haggard, uh, Gary Puckett, uh, Judy Collins, Bobby V, Chad and Jeremy, Lee Hazelwood, Del Shannon, Connie Francis, Ella Fitzgerald, Johnny Rivers, Gary Lewis, Tiny Tim, Jackie DeShannon, Monkeys, Ronettes, Paul Revere and the Raiders, <laughs> Bo Brummels, uh, Mason Williams, Classical Gas, Buffalo Springfield, Lou Rawls, Birds, and there's tons more. So he must have been easy to work with, right? You don't survive in that atmosphere unless you're really good and also not a jerk. You don't make mistakes. You show up on time, you don't cause problems, and you play as good as anybody in the world can because there's some guy just as good standing out down the hall waiting for your job, <laughs> right? Yeah. And Jim's working six days a week, three three-hour sessions a day. He's got a couple of drum sets. He's got some people that work with him, and they tear down his drum set when he finishes at one studio, and they move it to the one that's two sessions ahead, having already set up a drum at the next session. So he's mowing down, oh, you know, 20 sessions a week and bringing in big bread, like $2,000 a, a, a week in, in uh, nineteen mid-60s money, making more money than both his parents when he's 20 years old. Mm. Uh, what is interesting when you look through his, just what records his, his name's, 
is on is how many non-famous records, like you said. You know, if you're if you're playing that many sessions, you're playing out a lot of non-hits also. And there's just tons and tons of records you never heard of before that he plays on. And I and if you go back and try to listen to them, which uh, we heard some today, is you just hear like, oh yeah, there is this common Jim Gordon thing going through. And I think part of the Jim Gordon legacy is that we don't. You don't hear people tell too many stories about Jim Gordon's work because of the way the story ends. It's just, you know, just nobody wants to talk about that. And I fully understand that. But it's a shame that we don't get to hear more about how these records were made because of this other thing. I ran into that in researching the book, where people absolutely just utterly refused to talk, didn't want to have anything to do with it. And, 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 you know, it, it was almost like, well, I did have the phone hung up on me. Okay. Mm. Uh, and then on the other hand, I had people just go, Oh, Jim. Oh, I, I, I can't, I, I, I gotta talk to you. I gotta tell you everything. He was wonderful. Van Dyke parks. I called up Van Dyke and he says, Oh, Jim, he was the esprit de corps. We couldn't have done it without him. I mean, if, so there were just the, the there was two feelings about Jim Gordon. There was nothing in between. He was tall. He was shy. He was gorgeous. He was really sweet <laughs> and very polite, right? So I mean, he just fit into this scene like everybody's younger brother. And then he played these miraculous drums, mm-hmm. and the drums were not like timekeeping. The, the, he had a compositional sense of drums, and he worked to embed his playing in the fabric of the song that he was recording. And that's the secret of the studio musician, and that's what Jim was so good at. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've had a few guests who have worked with him, and whenever I've brought him up, it, it's they don't want to talk about it. And I think it's just a little bit, it's just sad, you know, it's just, let's not go there. And I, I fully respect that, you know, uh, let's go to the beginning. One thing I think is very interesting. He's born in 1945. Hal Blaine was born in 29, Earl Palmer, 24. They were the two most prolific guys in LA, uh, before Jim. And I think, so he's just enough younger than those guys that when the change sort of happens, like when bands like The Who and Led Zeppelin and Cream come in, you know, Hal Blaine is not going to be on those kinds of sessions, but Jim could be on those sessions and also hang with those people. Uh, and I think that's... Yeah, they, were, they were the same age. Yeah, which is very in his favor in the second uh, part of his, his career. So let's go back to his personal life. He leaves his wife. What kind of a husband was he? I mean, I, I mean, I know he was just too busy to be a husband is my, is the, the simple answer, right? I think his wife was a little busy too. She was a dancer on television hmm. and they were high school sweethearts and they, and they were just gorgeous together. And the, they were very successful right out of the box. I mean, you know, the Everly brothers, the day after high school and Jill was dancing in Vegas at that time. She ends up on Dick Clark's where the action is TV show. So they they were both like, you know, show business couple. I think Jill was very devoted to the marriage and, and Jim got less. So, and at about when he was about 22, Jill got pregnant. They, they were separated at the time and he moved back in and tried to become a father. And that lasted a couple of years. And then on his 24th birthday, he moved out. So this, all of this session work peaks around 1968. And I think he's itching. It's funny because while he was playing in the clubs as a kid, he was itching to get in the studio. After a few years of that, he's getting a little bit bored and he's itching to do something else. And he kind of gets into this right place, right time wave. He goes on this legendary tour with Delaney and Bonnie and Eric Clapton and George Harrison, then into this another legendary situation, the Mad Dogs and Englishmen tour. These are both notorious parties, really, uh, that that also have a musical element to them. What was his drug alcohol intake like at that time? And what was the general, you know, what was the, the vibes of the tour, the tours? So, um, the drugs and alcohol part of Jim's life really kicks in on the Mad Dogs and Englishmen tour. And th- this also may have to do with an emerging mental illness, right? Because there's other signs of, of, of that coming out, especially with the sort of the, the violent eruption with his girlfriend, Rita Coolidge. But it, 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 almost immediately, 
he demonstrated a, a, an incredible capacity to consume large amounts of drugs. And that, that kind of like presages the illnesses coming because the drugs can actually suppress the symptoms and, and, and more effectively he would find out than the prescription drugs that psychiatrists gave him. But that, that's coming later. In Mad Dogs and the Englishman, you know, it was a full-scale Bacchanal all involved. And, and, and that's where Jim really started to exercise his interest in drug culture. But by the time uh, Derek and the Dominoes were finished with their album and touring the United States, they were all just completely uh, junked out on heroin and um, cocaine and badly addicted. So uh, when Jim left England after, uh, what, two years there playing with Harrison and Clapton and all those guys and went back to studio work in Los Angeles, he came back really, you know, strung out on drugs and, and, and had to get straight. You talked about him punching, um, well, you didn't say that, but that's what he did. He punched Rita Coolidge, who was his girlfriend at the time, I think in the hallway of a hotel or something. There were people around. I mean, this is a little bit, I mean, this is the horrible, right? This is not just regular uh, throw your TV out the window. This, why, didn't, why wasn't there a full stop just right there? So you got to see the, the whole Mad Dogs and Englishmen, 30, 40 20-year-olds just absolutely going bananas in every way. They're, they're, they're drugs, sex, rock and roll, and, and, and full bacchanalia. And the, the drama in, in the troupe just was so at a high level that Jim clobbering Rita just didn't register that much. Really didn't. And I find it highly ironic that amongst all this you know, craziness, they couldn't distinguish authentic psychotic behavior. But that's sort of the Jim's story all along. There's these people in the music business, they, they're cool with alcoholics, they were cool with drug addicts, they were cool with, with, with sex deviants, but somebody who was actually mentally ill, they didn't know what to do with. That's interesting, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a good place to hide, right, if, if you're mentally ill. There's this idea that you float in the book that nobody knew Jim. I think this is something that you sort of picked up in your research is that, you know, was it that there was no Jim to know that, you know, his whole life he was just kind of pretending to be normal so that his real personality didn't sort of exist? Did he not have a personality or was he hiding it? What was going on? Well, his interior life was a mess and it evolved into some really desperate mental illness. He learned early on in life to present himself well. I mean, had to answer the phone at home a certain way, and the parents were very, you know, Eisenhower era, uh, seen and not heard and all that. So he learned to put that face on, and his interior life was something that he kept himself remote from. And then I say that because trying to um, talk to people about Jim, and the people who worked with him and knew him and were around him quite a bit, they didn't really know him. They couldn't answer personal questions. And and so then you say, like, well, who are his friends? Well, he didn't really have any friends. And there's no real, like, you know, there, there's people he worked with. I talked to a guy named Dean Parks. Dean Parks is probably the single most recorded guitar player in, in modern history at this point. And it starts out in the early 70s doing sessions in Los Angeles from the Sonny and Cher band. And, uh, and, and, and he says, I don't know, Joel, I mean, you know, I, I don't think I had a serious conversation. Would you ever have dinner with him? No, no, never, never, no, never, never went to lunch. No. I mean, you know, we just grab a few uh, 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 words between uh, takes. I mean, so we were busy in there. I said, Dean, you spent hundreds of hours in rooms without windows with this guy, didn't you? He goes, yeah. I go, and you don't know who he is? He goes, no, I guess I don't really. So that's Jim, and that's the mental illness working. He's not forthcoming because whatever's going on inside him, he's not really willing to share. He can't share. He can't contend with. He can't quite wrap his head around it, we would say. and Instead, he goes for sort of like a, a presentation. I think I refer to it as a mask in the book. The mask slips from time to time. 
Yeah, so interesting and so weird. Uh, let me remind folks that Jill Selvin is our guest. The book is called Drums and Demons, The Tragic Journey of Jim Gordon. And Jill's website is jillselvin.com. And uh, lots of information about lots of your great books is up on that website. And it's kind of a fun website. Go check it out. Yeah, he, so he plays with John. He's taking heroin every single day. But he's playing with John Lennon. He's playing with uh, George Harrison on What Is Life. What a great record that is. Is he still capable of being amazed at his own life? Is he still having some fun at this point? So at that point, when he's in London, I feel he had ascended into some kind of sort of place where he felt really invulnerable and it allowed him to be act out a little bit more than, than he, than he had felt comfortable with. And he had, I mean, he was no longer one of the anonymous artisans of the recording studio. He was on stage with the, 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 you know, most celebrated figures of the rock world of the day. And they were embracing him as their drummer. You know, he goes in to do the George Harrison sessions. They were already underway, and Ringo had been drumming. And Ringo had to leave the country and do some work of his own, and, and Jim comes in and starts drumming. So when Ringo comes back, they hand him a tambourine. <laughs> it's like, no, we, we like this guy. And, and Ringo, by the way, he didn't care. You know, he was fine with that. And besides, he thought Jim was amazing, too. And by the end of the Harrison sessions, they're doing double drums together. Hmm. He plays with Traffic. He plays with Clapton on some of his records. He plays, of course, with Derek and the Dominoes. This is a huge chapter in the book, which I really don't we don't need to talk about too much because it's really just he co-writes Layla, uh, or or maybe he does. That's a whole other story. But it's lots of drugs, lots of bad vibes, and eventually he moves back to L.A., uh, gets a new girlfriend, and right away this is what kind of blew my mind. I mean, he's just in such a bad way. What you describe this black cloud, you know, and right away he's into this, this kind of new studio scene. And over the next few years, he plays with Zappa and Mama Cass and Wayne Newton and Tom Waits. Again, the variety is what is so astounding. And in this next chapter, because you know, and it's astounding because the demons he's battling, yet the amount of work that he's doing at the same time is amazing. And I want to, again, take a pause just to read a list of records that he plays on uh, because they're they're records we all know. I Am Woman, 1972, which I just listened to, and I was like, it didn't sound like I thought it was going to sound like, and the drumming on it is great. Uh, Summer Breeze, Carly Simons, You're So Vain, Midnight at the Oasis, B.W. Stevenson's My Maria, Rock the Boat by Hughes Corporation, Sundown by Gordon Lightfoot, Rockford Files by Jim Post, uh, Ricky Don't Lose That Number by Steely Dan, Burton Cummings, Stan Tall, and he plays on one of the songs on Tom Petty's first LP. So this is like 72 to 76. Like I said, amazing how... His mental health was so deteriorating, yet he is playing on so many hits. How did he do it? Maybe even playing better than he ever has. Carly Simon's uh, drummer, the uh, Andy Newmark, was in the studio when, in London when Jim showed up and, and, and put the drums on uh, You're So Vain. And he was sat in the drum booth and watched and described it to me in quite detail. I mean, five hours, 60 takes, no mistakes, just dialing the part in piece by piece by piece. I mean, Newmark, talking to me like, you know, many, many years later, he said it's the most extraordinary performance he's ever seen by anyone on the drums. <laughs> and then you go back and listen to the record. I mean, what's that record without that drum part, right? Mm. That, record, that, that record rises and falls on Jim Gordon. Oh yeah, it's it's such a hit. I mean, the, that that but a lot of those records I just mentioned, like you know, the groove or whatever, is just so undeniable and so part of the thing. And like you know, Rock the Boat seventy four is a little early for disco, but he is like right. You know, it's just the 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 variety that he was able to to get in the studio is. Uh, kind of amazing. Of course, right around the end of this period is when sort of the big, what I think is the big break from reality happens, and he's just become sort of hard to be around, and, you know, people are sort of abandoning him. Uh, he ends up on tour with, kind of thrown into this um, 
kind of all-star band that was sort of thrown together and it, it was never like a great chemistry thing uh, the southern hillman and fury band and he's like i think you sort of describe him sort of being like jekyll and hyde the, the the book sort of gives a great idea of what it's like being around him at this time and at this point the sort of well-behaved guy that's all sort of out the window and it really makes you feel sorry for a guy who is literally just his insides are just you know, pushing him in 10 different directions at once. It's its horrible. Yes, and still trying to accomplish what he had accomplished in, in this incredibly competitive, high-level profession, right? And by 75, he's starting to see psychiatrists. But he won't tell them about the voices. You know, he tells them he's depressed. He tells them he's worried about money. He tells them he feels guilty about his wife and daughter. But he doesn't tell them that his head is buzzing with voices. And they think, well, this guy is depressed. He's, but he's operating on such a high level in this in this incredible profession. Can't be that bad. He certainly, you know, can't be psychotic. So that you know, they would give him like antidepressants and tranquilizers, and and he would just gobble those along with the uh, other stuff he was taking, and then and it had no real apparent effect. Uh, he really it, it had an extraordinarily severe illness and and there was no uh mitigating it by uh medical. of course that's the beginning of psychiatric medicine right so sort of the 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 crude early days of very powerful anti-psychotic medicine that had a lot of unfortunate side effects and you know mm. that's what they had to treat him with and and uh, they also were confused by the drug and alcohol use because that's early in recovery community and and what what they know now about what they call dual diagnosis which is where you are organically mentally ill but at the same time you are also addicted to substances and that's a, like a complicated situation they braid together and uh, in in 1975 they didn't really have much of a concept of dual diagnosis so a lot of people including Jim's mother just wrote Jim's problems off to drugs and alcohol it's tough did you have to research mental illness to write this book or did it just come with the the territory uh, patrick o'brien dr o'brien i was introduced to patrick by an old uh, associate of mine from the chronicle uh and patrick uh, is up at napa state mental hospital where he deals with uh, schizophrenics on every day we had a number of sessions uh lunches and 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 phone conversations and you know i got i got personally trained by patrick and uh, and and a couple other psychiatrist rock fans because it was like oh you're doing the jim gordon book you know <laughs> he's no well known among uh, uh psychiatrists uh. Uh, it's a shame that he was not honest with his doctors and so he's hearing these voices and one of the things the voices are telling him to do is to starve himself and it again is amazing to me in the middle of this 1977 uh, he plays on rich girl by hall and oates plays on the muppets barry manilow he's doing soundtracks he's captain and Tennille. and again a hundred records by folks you've never, ever heard of. It's amazing to me that he was able to function at all. 77, 76, he starts touring and recording with Burton Cummings, playing on some of his hits. And uh, we know a lot about sort of what, was there, did he keep a diary at that time? Yes, there were some, there were uh, diaries and uh, some very bizarre private thoughts. He was struggling to, deal with all this that was going on and and he was ashamed of it he felt like that he was an intelligent person and that the behavior that he was engaged in was against his own best interests and 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 he couldn't stop it he couldn't and and it was embarrassing to him hmm. So yeah, he would meet psychiatrists and he and, and he would try and get them to help him without being fully forthcoming about what his condition was, because he was ashamed of it. I think this is kind of common syndrome with me mentally ill people. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Uh, it, it's in, there's a great anecdote in the book. He finally checks himself into a facility where he's given accidentally three times the correct dose of antipsychotics, and it has no effect on him because he's built up such a tolerance because he's taken so many drugs for so long. They don't affect him, and they should have like conked him out, you know, like a gorilla. 
Yeah, well, that's also how severe his uh, illness was, is that they, they couldn't even medicate it down like uh, they could most of the people. You know, that's another thing about schizophrenics, Michael, is, is, is 50% of them can't be treated at all. Yeah. Well, in 1978, a doctor says that he's in remission and he ends up going on tour with Jackson Brown, who's sort of red hot right at that moment. So this is like brings up this theme of doctors not seeing when he's lying to them or, you know, obviously not in remission. You know, and I'm not casting aspersions, but should they have seen through that? Should they have helped him better? And knowing what we know today, do you think a guy like Jim would have been able to get over this with drugs and treatment, or is is it just hopeless? There are more effective uh, remedies and and, and a lot more knowledge uh, available today, Uh, a lot more. Uh, in uh, 1978, uh, uh, really, they, they, they had very primitive understanding of this. And then, of course, you have a patient who's not fully forthcoming about his symptoms with the uh, psychiatrist. I mean, that, that's impossible to deal with anyway. That's a, a factor of the mental illness. So I don't think Jim was going to get anything out of treatment. I, I, I think Jim's illness was so severe hmm. that there was no controlling it. There was no holding it back. And at the same time, though, and this is the sort of like, uh, you know, uh, uh, flowers for Algernon thing, that whatever that brilliant genius thing that came in his drumming, it came from the same place the illness did. There's that same electrochemical setup in the brain that made him special as a drummer also tortured him as a a human being. And his life was a nightmare. His life was a walking nightmare, and it got worse and worse and worse and worse. Yeah, that that period from 1978 when he's, quote, in remission to 1983 is really a living nightmare. He's coked out, he's in and out of treatment, he's hearing voices, and they're telling him, like what you said earlier, throw your gold records out and, you know, don't eat and, you know, your mom and all this stuff. It's just, it's uh, it's a living nightmare. Uh, the book opens with him in the early 80s. He's barely keeping it together. He's burned his bridges and he's reduced kind of to this uh, weekly gig playing at a cover band in a Santa Monica bar. I think it's like $30 a night for a a few sets a night. So interesting. And I so wish I could have seen that band. Do you, did you talk to people who saw that band and what did they say? So that's Rolly Sally playing in that band. Rolly has been in the Chris Isaac band for a million years. And Pete Anderson was in that band. They were called the blue monkeys. Pete would be Dwight Yoakam's record producer and so they went on, those guys went on to have real good careers and, uh, they're quite good to talk to because they remembered being around Jim Gordon at this point when they were nobodies and he was a somebody. Yeah. And I talked to some of their old girlfriends and then I, I, I ran into some, uh, friend of mine from the record business who had actually been out there and, and seen the blue monkeys in Santa Monica. But yeah, 1983, he was out playing on Monday nights at some Irish bar in downtown Santa Monica, not even on the pier, I tell you. I mean, this is, this is you know, funky stuff. This, this is a long way from Barbra Streisand sessions. <laughs> it's amazing the evolution of his, I mean, this is, this is almost exactly 20 years, the evolution in music, the evolution in Los Angeles, the evolution of record making, and, you know, his own personal evolution. It's just a uh, an incredible story. Uh, so around this time, this is when voices are telling him over and over he's got to kill his mom in order to sort of get rid of this pain. And his mom took actual physical notes sometimes when he would call her, uh, you know, and have these chilling things he would say to her. Eventually he does kill her. He ends up uh, going, I think, to a bar and then maybe somewhere else to see a, some band and there's some friends there. And then eventually that night he just goes home, lies on the floor till the cops come and, and get him. And he says, yeah, I did it. And he goes to jail. One of the things that must have been so hard was that he had friends and he had tons of work acquaintances and people he'd, you know, made these incredible records with. And, you know, to to all of a sudden be this pariah and people must have felt split. Now, obviously not everyone felt split. Uh, Mike Post and 
Jill testified for the prosecution. He gets sentenced to second degree murder, uh, 12 years to life. And he was, I think, up for parole a few times. Originally wasn't interested in that. And then they never felt he was quite uh, well enough to do it. But going back to 83, when it happened, you say that the only person who showed up to see Jim was Jay Osmond, which I just found that mind-blowing. Yeah, he was the drummer in the Osmond family, and, and Jim had been in the Andy Williams show in Vegas for a couple of months in like about 67 or so, and the, the Osmonds must have been just total kids, right? And and Jim had been very encouraging to Jay Osmond, and Jay never forgot it. And yeah, that was the only person who showed up in court to like show support for Jim. He was an instant pariah. Everybody immediately averted their eyes. And the whole thing was just too horrifying to deal with. But of course, that's just because this thing came out of a vacuum. What? He did what? They didn't know about the 15 times he checked into mental hospitals. They didn't know about all the struggles with drugs and alcohol. Or, you know, if they did, they just wrote it off. You know, I I, I talked to Jackson uh, about his uh, his time with Jim. And uh, Jim was living in... um, halfway house for uh, uh, people who were mentally ill at that point. And I asked Jackson, did he know that Jim was, and, and Jackson said, no, no. Uh, he, he he had a sense that, the, that he was coming out of rehab, but he figured it was just drugs and alcohol because who didn't have problems with drugs and alcohol, and he never asked him about it. So that's Jackson, so, you know, accepting and welcoming and, and, and really, you know, putting his hand out to help Jim when nobody else did at the time. You know. Did anyone you talked to express regret in um, not giving him some sort of support back then? I don't think anybody really even knew what was going on until it was all over. Uh, by the time he, he, he stopped playing set gigs, which is like 78 and just retreated to his house with these tiny little forays and small time bands that he was sitting in with, uh, he just disappeared and, and nobody paid that any attention. They never do in Hollywood. You just, when you're, you you have no more use, you just kind of disappear. Uh, You don't go into his jail life too much in the book. Was there just not much to say, or did you just not think that was important? Why would I want to take my readers to jail with Jim? Well, he played in the prison band. I I always thought that was interesting. No, no, he he, he, didn't. No, no, he would hang around a little bit. I talked to people that were inside with Jim, and, and, you know, he was... Not friendly. He was always on the edge of things. He was really kept to himself. Uh, he had. Uh, he apparently kind of liked the institutional life. Uh, I, I know I have a hmm. uh, interview with him from 1990 when he's in the and he's telling the uh, interviewers how much he likes the food. I mean, <laughs> but uh, no, he wasn't really. Uh, I mean, it's just like it, it, the the story is over. When he goes to jail, the what happens that last chapter that's that that's that's like a coda. That's like just a you know a flourish at the end, because you know the his life as a as a prisoner is just it's it's nothing. It's it's just dreadful. It's it's there. You know, get up at seven forty five, go have breakfast, take your drugs, sit in the day room, watch you know Captain Kangaroo, go back to your you know. Uh, how's his daughter and his, his ex-wife? What is their, like, this many years later, are they, how do they feel about all this? Well, neither Jill or Amy or Mike Post would cooperate or participate or talk to me in any uh, detailed way until Jim died. And Jim died after I'd finished writing the first draft of the book. The, man, the publisher already had the manuscript. Uh, and then Jim died and family reached out to me at that point, we, we shifted gears and we had long interviews and, uh, I, I added the material to the manuscript, it helped me with photographs and, and it, it all became very touching because Amy, his daughter really had very little relationship with her father. And her father was really a very difficult remote and his her grandmother was very close to her. 
So this was extraordinarily traumatic event in her life. And she's still trying to like deal with what it means and, and who her father was and, and, and how it impacted her. I think Jill was a little bit more um, remote from the blast zone by that time. But she still was, you know, she was curious about what it was like for Jim later in his life. And she wanted to know some of the things that I'd found out. And Post, you know, Post is a burly, tough, uh, 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 strong guy who, uh, you know, had a very serious attitude about Jim. And and he'd done a lot of work with Jim and it had been great and been wonderful. And then it wasn't so wonderful. And he was super close to Jim's first wife. He was his daughter's godfather. He took that very seriously. And he was real close to Jim's mother. So all this was like deeply personal to Mike Post, too. Yeah. Ooh, it's such... An amazing story. And like I said at the top of our chat, it just really, really needed telling. And I'm so glad you are the guy to do it because you really balanced uh, just the, the straight up research that, you know, that didn't exist until you sort of dug it out and put it all in perspective and, uh, you know, balance the kind of what you said earlier, uh, put some compassion to the story because the, the, the music is so, so, so good. And, uh, I'm still trying to figure out how to balance, you know, what he did with what he did in the recording studio. So it's just uh, super interesting. Thank you so much for visiting with us. JoelSelvin.com is the website. Did did making the book, I mean, has it? did it blow your mind? Did it change you? Oh, all the way along. I, I've, I've never been so affected by research and knowledge and, and, and this, this person. I mean, I, I wrote Jim... Uh, throughout the uh, uh, project in prison, and he, he never replied. But I, I came to feel so powerfully for this guy, and how uh, you know I, I don't want to say unfairly maligned because you know he, he killed his mother, but it it, it was also it, it really was a function of something much larger than you know an act of malevolence. It, it, it really was just a, a, a symptom of a very severe mental illness in an extraordinarily dramatic circumstance. And and then you start like going into the work and, and you've done this yourself just in getting ready for the radio show, Michael, his work is sensational. And once you zero in on the Jim Gordon part of any record he's on, it just lights up in a whole different way. Yeah, that's exactly so right. it's a, been, it's been a fantastic ride for me. And yeah, you're right. This book is amazing, and it's amazing because of Jim's story. That's what's amazing. All right, let's hear some Jim Gordon. Joel, thank you so much. Michael, I appreciate the interest. It's great to talk to you again, and and, um, I really, um, you know, thank you so much. This means a lot to me. Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear words they're saying Only the echoes of my mind People stopping, staring I can't see their faces Only the shadows of their eyes I'm going where the sun keeps shining through the pouring rain Going well the weather Suits my clothes Banking off of the northeast winds Sailing on summer breeze And skipping over the ocean Like a stone Like a stone 
Everybody's talking at me Can't hear a word they're saying Only the echoes of my mind I won't let you leave my love behind No, I won't let you Find a way 
to believe that it's all true Knowing that you lied straight faced while I cried Still I look to find a reason to believe Talk of all the things we did today Yeah And laugh about our funny little ways While we have a few minutes to breathe Then I know that it's time you must leave But darling, be home soon I couldn't bear to wait an extra minute Darling, be home soon It's not just these few hours But I've been waiting since I toddled For the great relief of having you to talk to And now A quarter of my life is almost past I think I've come to see myself at last And I see Time spent confused Was the time that I spent without you And I feel myself in bloom So darling, be home soon I couldn't bear to wait an extra minute If you dawdle My darling, be home soon It's not just these few hours, but I've been waiting since I toddled For the great relief of having you to talk to Head against the sky Try And see beyond the houses And your eyes It's okay To shoot Darling, be home soon I couldn't bear to wait An extra minute If you don't Darling, be home soon It's not just these few hours, but I've been waiting since I toddled For the great relief of having you to talk to Stop to think it all 
that's what I'm about I was there to steal her money Take her rings and run Then I fell in love 